ICE Theatres, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the ICE Theatres experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. ICE Theatres, meet us at CinemaCon with 2113A. Yeah, look at the moment with the admissions we're getting, we're seeing at about 12.5% increase compared to pre-pandemic. And that is, you know, that's really strong. We've seen our average ticket price go up on the back of that as well. So it's been a, with the fewer admissions that we've been getting due to that missing content, we're certainly appreciative of people choosing the much better experience. I think people, you know, after being in their houses, really, truly want an experience that's something you can't get anywhere else. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Aria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition here in our daily CinemaCon podcast series presented by Ice Theatres. Today is April 26th, Wednesday. We're going to be going over the schedule and all of the highlights from Tuesday here at CinemaCon 2023. And in our feature segment, we will be speaking with Luke Mackey, the Director of Entertainment in Australia from Event Cinemas, and also Alexandra Holden, the Group General Manager over at Event Cinemas. That's coming up in our feature segment. But first, let's introduce our co-hosts here. We've got Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro. Hi. Hello. And Romeo Duchenne making his triumphant return here on the Box Office Podcast from the Box Office Company. Welcome, Romeo. Bonjour, mes amis. Glad to be here. So let's go into things, guys, because it's going to be another early day here in Las Vegas. Rebecca, what's the daily schedule highlights that we have to look forward to here on Wednesday? The highlight that jumps out most to me is that, dang, things start early tomorrow, <laughs> 7.45. But at least it looks like it's going to be an interesting and informative panel. Uh, we have community building at your cinema through creative marketing with panelists Luke Parker Bowles of Cinema Lab, Eric Carr, Senior Vice President in theater marketing at Universal, Gabriela Gomez of Department of Influence, and Michael Kosterman, the Chief Experience Officer at Alamo Draft House. So I'm excited for that one. And then by 9.30, the Disney presentation. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to, I mean, I don't know if I'll, if I'll actually be able to get and stay and sit through the screening because obviously we have a ton of, uh, we have 18 million things we're doing uh, here at Box Office Pro on any given day at CinemaCon. But yeah, The Boogeyman, that was a film that was originally going to go straight to Hulu. Now it is going exclusively theatrical with an exclusive theatrical window. And, you know, I'm that certainly speaks to their confidence in the film, I think. I'm excited. You know, I, I'm a horror person. And as for the rest of Disney, you know, we, well, for more on that, listen to a few episodes back where we talk about all the things that we're curious about seeing from the Disney Studio presentation this year. There's a lot. Yeah, quite a bit. It probably won't be a very lengthy presentation. We just sat through two hours plus of Warner Brothers earlier today. We'll be going over all the details of that shortly. Disney, usually a little bit different here at CinemaCon. Shorter presentations, very macro level, and then a full-on screening. The Boogeyman from 20th Century Studios, originally planned as a straight-to-streaming title. Now that's going on theatrical exclusively. Very interested to hear reactions from that movie. And at 4 p.m., Rebecca, 
another studio presentation. Yeah, we're getting uh, universal and focus features. So uh, what we've been saying about how we want the bigger films, the more medium films, we are definitely going to be getting a range here between universal and the more kind of art house, you know, smaller side of that market, of that circuit, of that company. There you go. <laughs> and let's go into everything that happened here on Tuesday uh, because it was another packed day at CinemaCon, usually Tuesday is when everybody goes into the Coliseum, hears a state of the industry presentation from John Fiffian, remarks from the head of the MPA, Charlie Rifkin, and a nice speech from the recipient of the NATO Marquee Award this year. This year was a little bit different because obviously we've got John Fiffian retiring. It was a different vibe. And also we have to, to mention it. There was a lot of very nice remarks earlier today as there were yesterday on the unfortunate passing of Eric Lomas, who was heading up distribution over at MGM United Artists. A lot of colleagues that were very shocked, I think all of us were shocked to hear of that news. And there were a lot of, I think, very nice memorial sections and, and recognitions to, to Eric and really the great legacy he left in this industry. I think rather than going into too much detail of what happened to say to the industry, that's the big takeaway that I had. Yeah. Just the, the, the moments that we had in memory of Eric Lomas. How about for yourself, Rebecca? What stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, all in all, I think the tone was a little bit more positive, a little bit more even keel maybe uh, than in previous years. I think it's fair to say that the last two years maybe, I don't know, is combative. That's not, I don't mean to say that the tone has been combative previously, but the industry, you know. Had a chip on its shoulder. Did feel a little bit, rightfully so, under. Yeah. Siege in, yeah. in the few previous CinemaCons. This time around, in the state of the industry address from John Fithian and in Charlie Rifkin of the MPA in his presentations, we got kind of really hammering home a lot of the points that have been you know, expressed by other panelists so far this year. Streaming, or rather direct, you know, day and date on streaming, proved itself to be a financial failure. I know people have been saying that, but I don't mind hearing it one or two or three more times. Honestly, I think that we as an industry deserve to crow about that kind of as long as we want. And then also kind of looking at the importance of cinema as a global marketplace. Obviously, when we hear a box office pro talk about that, we mean it from, you know, the perspective of exhibition. Charlie Rifkin of the MPA came, at least in his speech, more from a production angle about how the MPA is uh, really, really working to enhance film production globally in different markets. You cited the Middle East as like a booming market with a ton of potential. We definitely know that that's the case on the exhibition side of things too. So yeah, nothing, uh, no big surprises, I think, in either of the speeches, but I'm good with a lack of surprises after these last few years we've had with a lot of bad ones. Yeah, uh, I think it was a little bit of a return to stability. Maybe not normalcy, but stability here on the schedule, on the calendar. And it's reflected on the remarks that open up Tuesday morning over at the Coliseum. That address led us directly into the Warner Brothers studio presentation that we're about to just break down in its entirety. A uh, special year for Warner Brothers Romeo celebrating 100 years. I want to hear from you on, on a couple of titles, but, but before we jump into that, I do want to focus on probably what set the tone for the entire uh, presentation. Mm -hmm. To open up, Jeff Goldstein, the head of domestic distribution over at Warner Brothers, and Andrew Cripps, who uh, leads international distribution, walked onto the stage with hot pink suits 
to Aqua's Barbie Girl song from the late 90s. You're probably too young, Romeo. Rebecca, I definitely know that song. Oh, I could, I could sing that song word for word now. And our producer, Chad, is nodding like, yes, definitely. He can too. That makes three of us karaoke, karaoke. later this week. We'll see, we'll see how that yeah. turns out. I really hope that Jeff and Andrew get to keep those suits and that they wear them often. Yeah, well, you know what? We'll invite them to karaoke too. Maybe they know the words. We'll find out later on. But I think that's at the tone in a very upbeat Warner Brothers presentation. A lot of energy. We'll go into our reactions of what we saw from Greta Gerwig's Barbie, which I think was a real highlight of that Warner Brothers presentation. But a bit of a surprise guest here. We've never had an executive so high up here from studio parent companies, not even the studio mm-hmm. itself. We're talking about the head of Warner Discovery, David Saslav. Of course, Warner Discovery being spun out of AT&T not too long ago. Discovery coming in, taking over in this major, major media merger. David Saslav erasing all of the day and date shenanigans from the time that AT&T was the owner of Warner Media. That all went out the window. Rebecca, a lot of interesting comments here in a speech that seemed oddly off the cuff. This is a very like rehearsed, usually spots from executives. I don't think David Saslav had written remarks. I think he spoke from the heart. But maybe that's why he's so high up and has gotten so successful because he can make (laughs) a seem off the cuff. That might be it. Some great quotes here. First off, he knew how to win the room over at the Coliseum at Caesars Palace. This is a crowd that felt, I think betrayed is not the wrong word to use of the former management after getting that great vote of confidence in releasing Tenet exclusively to theaters, the first major title to come out during the pandemic, completely blindsided by this uh, pet project of uh, HBO Max Mm -hmm. that we had in that former management with a year's worth of day and date releases. It was fine at the start when we were still going under uh, this COVID crisis, then the vaccine was available to everyone. People started coming back. And then just the second half of that didn't work. That's gone. That's out the window. What did David Saslav say about his stance on day and date and theatrical exclusivity? It was interesting because, well, first off, he said what we all have been saying long before anyone at Warner Brothers Discovery was saying it. Day and date doesn't work. Theatrical exclusive windows are important. Quote, we believe in the full windowing of motion pictures. We do not want to do direct to streaming movies. Very, very pointed, very direct. I think there was definitely the sense that AT&T was maybe uh, sacrificing the Warner Brothers, the, the filmmaking side of their business, to benefit other sectors. And here we have Dazaslav saying specifically, we're not in the broadband business, we're not in the phone business. We're storytellers and we actually are here to focus on film. I found it so interesting that the head of Warner Discovery went to great lengths to distance himself and his management team from the folks that were there before telling the studio people what to do and the strategy things. We know, you know, in, in many regards, we know that the folks at Warner Brothers who had to take these orders from the people above them were put in very uncomfortable situations, mm-hmm. long-term relationships, uh, working relationships with folks in exhibition, both domestically and internationally. That was put at risk by these short-sighted policies mm-hmm. from folks like Jason Kyler, who was formerly in Warner Media to head up HBO Max. They prioritize streaming. David Saslav, the new boss in town, comes in, sets the record straight, like Rebecca says. That's the past. 
We're not in the selling phone business. They're not selling phone plans. They're not selling internet packages. They're telling stories. They're making movies. Mm-hmm. I think it was the right thing to say at the right time. And I think the best example of that is what we saw from the Barbie movie. Because this, I think, under many other studios, under many other eras, would have been a very, very different movie. This iteration of the Barbie movie under Warner Brothers had one thing that completely sold it to me. For me, that was directed by Greta Gerwig, Mm -hmm. written and directed by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. And what we saw footage from the Barbie movie today, I could hear Greta Gerwig's voice through a lot of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. In the same way that when you watch Lady Bird, of course, yes, that's Shorsha Ronan saying those lines. She's not doing Greta Gerwig impression. She has a distinct voice, and I think it's... You think of, I mean, Barbie intentionally by kind of the nature of what it is. I mean, it's kind of blank. You know, little kids play with Barbie. They put their own ideas and hopes and dreams into Barbie. So I think having a distinct, powerful tone there is really important and really amazing and really good. It kind of feels like another Warner's film that came out a few years back, the Lego movie. Like, you remember, yeah. you remember pre-Lego movie? It's like, oh my God, they will make a movie It seemed like a cash kind grab, of right? It seemed like just, let's get this corporate thing, make some money out of a this toy. This February movie can't possibly make me cry. Yeah. But, spoiler alert, it did. So, <laughs> <laughs> and it spawned other spinoffs, like a Lego Batman movie under the same vein. I think it's a very similar bet here. They didn't go all Lord and Miller. They've already done that. They went with a unique voice and a unique vision in Greta Gerwig. And one of the things that really, I think, stood out for me was something that you brought up in your reactions, Romeo, is yeah. just how much fun everyone seemed to be having just talking about the movie and their experience shooting it. Yeah, but first of all, I mean, personally, I was caught by surprise being so hyped by a Barbie movie. Imagine all of my friends that are like, in a couple of days, you're going to ask, okay, how was the Vegas trip, man? And I'm going to say, well, I'm only hyped by Barbie, not only, but that's probably the highlight of my trip now. We were sitting together in the press section and that definitely seemed like one of the films that everybody was most hyped up. I mean, and that'll happen if Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling show up. Sorry, I just called Ryan Gosling Ken. He's all Already He's just, already can. It's hard yeah. not to get excited or feel butterflies in your tummy when you see Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie in person. In neon Again, just pink. In neon pink, impossibly attractive people. By the way, I don't know. I, we were talking about this before recording. Was Ryan Gosling wearing like a hot pink version of that, uh, like that scorpion jacket from Drive, that bomber jacket from Drive, but in hot pink, very Barbie-fied. I don't know if that was a callback. Maybe I'm imagining things, but there's a lot of these little playful elements throughout what we saw from the Barbie movie. Um, I cannot wait to see it. Yeah, definitely. Margot Robbie made a a very cute and very funny comment about the atmosphere on the set. According to her, the atmosphere uh, had a distinct quality. The vibrant colors created a feeling similar to a rush of dopamine. And even members of of a uh, production crew, such as those from uh, the Fast X team, shooting members were drowned to the Barbie uh, set due to his intriguing nature, sorry. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, a real unique atmosphere, and we really felt that when Margot Robbie and uh, and Ryan Gosling and Greta share with us uh, this movie today. So yeah, I I don't think I'd be as excited for this movie as I said earlier if it wasn't for Greta Gerwig's involvement. Mm-hmm. I just have to think back to 2014 mm-hmm. when Greta Gerwig takes, I think, a decision that a lot of actors would have taken right after the very popular sitcom How I Met Your Mother finishes its run. Mm -hmm. She's on the pilot to lead something called How I Met Your Dad, a spinoff network comedy 
to just make money and just be broad mm -hmm. comedy. And, you know, she probably would have enjoyed great success doing that. But I was a little bit heartbroken thinking, man, Greta Gerwig that I see in all these mumblecore films, she could have had an interesting career. Thank God yeah. that pilot didn't get picked up yeah. because now we have Lady Bird, now we have Little Women, and now we have Barbie. Now we have That's Barbie. the best thing that we could that could have happened. Greta Gerwig not ended up on network television. Yeah. She was probably devastated when it happened. Thank God it happened. Sorry, Greta. Sorry that you're not going to get those syndication rights, but we well, have, no one a, else we have these a, days a Barbie is. movie with yeah. a, <laughs> an Indigo Girls needle drop. We've mentioned Gerwig was there, Ryan Gosling, Margot Robbie, a fourth of the cast and crew who showed up, America Ferreira, who we saw kind of in the new extended trailer a little bit more of like the quote-unquote real-world aspect of the Barbie movie. You know, I feel like in the first trailer we got a lot of vibe, we got a lot of, you know, feeling, and in this one we actually got a little bit of a sense of some plot. But yeah, Barbie ends up in the real normal world and Will Ferrell... But again, is this not Will Ferrell in the Lego movie? Just a little play? bit, right? And it's kind of like a callback to that. I, I will say, of uh, what we saw, I think one of the interesting elements, and I'll give these guys a lot of credit, because in the Lego movie, the Legos were seen as a fun toy, as something that people like playing with. Everything that we've seen in advance from Barbie, there's an acknowledgement that the whole concept of playing with Barbies might be outdated. I think there's actually a line in the marketing materials that we saw that said, this is the movie to see if you hate Barbies. So yeah. it's something that actually plays with this concept. That it the looks like, seems like it's, it's breaking down a lot of the gender roles that yeah. people have traditionally criticized right. Barbie for. She's always wearing high heels. Always. <laughs> yeah. Always. And it has fun with it. And I think it's, it's honest with itself and saying, hey, this is something that means something different to this generation. You can criticize than prior it, but we ones. don't have to throw the whole thing away. Exactly. You can find value while poking holes at it. And I, I really, really responded to that. So I think we're all very excited to see this hit the big screen on July 21st. Let's keep on going in a chronological order here, guys, because if there's something that I love, it's movies of the month of August. That's yes. a whole genre unto yeah. itself. That's a genre where something like the original, The Meg, Mm -hmm. belongs in there's a sequel it's called the meg 2 the trench mm. we were we were planning uh, the production here and romeo brought up numbers that completely surprised me apparently the first meg movie was like a massive hit daniel you doubted the meg you didn't want to talk about the meg that much recording this and both romeo and i were like no we have we're to talking talk about, about the, meg. the meg 2 the trench i always thought it was like a b movie like a counter programmer it no, is, this is it is it's a successful wonderful amazing stupid and good i wanted to refresh my memory here and i looked at the uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter's 46%, audience scores 42%. I do not disagree with either of those numbers, but I freaking loved that movie, and so <laughs> did international audiences in particular, because it had an international yeah. cast, and international people went and Talking see Talking about international uh, yeah. figures, the first one uh, succeeded so much overseas, they did 70% of their box office outside of the US. 70%? 72%, yeah. 72. So 72% of a 530 million worldwide take. The first Meg movie made over half a billion dollars. Half a billion. Almost three quarters of that coming from international markets. There are certain things that just travel well across international markets. Tom Cruise, Will Smith, apparently shark movies. And Jason Statham. And Jason Statham, <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. want to disrespect What if you have him fighting a giant shark? Let's watch it oh, twice. Run it back. That was Run the first movie, The Meg to the Trench. It's multiple 
giant sharks. <laughs> and I do like the trailer gave a little nod. Uh, there's a, there's the a stupid scene in the first one that I love. This little teacup dog almost gets eaten, but it survives. And Pippin is back in this one. Pippin's still okay, y'all. Pippin's a movie star. <laughs> He's still around. He's still around. Gets, gets co-billying with us, David Massar, so we know. Well, like the we, the people who are on stage presenting the Warner Brothers slate were the co-presidents and chair people, uh, co-chair people and CEO, Pam Abdi and Mike DeLuca. And Pam did specifically name drop Pippin. Okay, so it, it's, it's it's like of substance here. Pippin's of a lot of substance. <laughs> well, talking about creatures we thought wouldn't survive but did and are apparently Immortal, The Nun 2 coming out on September 8th. The first Nun title is apparently the most successful in the Conjuring franchise. I oh, didn't yeah, know that, course. Romeo. So is this also kind of like the Meg, the first Nun movie, just that much of a big deal overseas? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely a big, big deal. And uh, the first one did $365 million globally. Mm. Wow. Which is huge. Yeah, uh, it's, pretty movie, it's pretty big. And uh, 117 domestic-wise. So in still a US. good number. Yeah. So we're looking at a benchmark of 100 million yeah. domestic for, for something like the Nun 2. That's the, not irrational to no, say. No, 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 no. And I think the audience reacted pretty nicely. I don't know if you remember during the presentation, they showed us this teaser trailer and then they cut the teaser trailer and then there were none, real, not real none, but people with well, the We don't know if they were actually in real the, nuns. And they might not have been the costumes. Audience. They might have just hired nuns to walk around and spook people. I'm not sure about we that. We don't know. Maybe those are costumes for, you know, uh, late night uh, places where you can go here in Las Vegas. Uh, we show, don't know. We might see them later this week. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, I've ever played so well on any jump scare, screamer that, of course, the audience reacted so well. And uh, and personally, horror movie for me is my the perfect draw to discover the movie in a, in a movie theater. Yeah, you horror, absolutely. Horror. So. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's an easy bet to say it's going to be over a million dollar, hundred million dollar in the U.S. So yeah. yeah. And it is one that uh, you could see a little bit of in the trailer. Like the nun was introduced, and we've kind of been finding a little bit more and a little bit more about that character as the movies go on. This one is like expanding the mythology of the Conjuring universe. So I guess that means more sequels and spin-offs and Conjuring movies until. Until um, people to, stop until it's time to reboot the Conjuring. Yeah, why not? Why not? So that's going to be coming out on September eighth. That's a window where Warner Brothers has had great success in early September with horror movies from Blumhouse. I know the It movies came out during that window. It always works. It's a, it's a dependable formula. Early September for horror in Warner Brothers. Let's go forward now to November third. Because one of the most anticipated films of the year, at least for myself, is coming out, Dune Part 2, releasing on November 3rd. I'm already trying to come up with excuses, guys. Yeah. My wedding anniversary is that weekend. I feel bad, but I'm probably going to tell my wife I'm going to go out to buy cigarettes if she can stay home with her newborn. But by the time I get out of watching Dune 2, she might think like went out for cigarettes and never came back. That's how long this she is going to be. She might have already moved out. It's probably moved four on. hours worse. Yeah, I, I don't want to know what's going to happen. But I'm really looking forward to watching this movie theatrically. I cannot imagine watching this at home. The first Dune, open day and date. That's a crime against cinema. Cool. This one isn't. Exclusive to theaters. One of the things, Rebecca, that I was really interested in the presentation is the director of this title, Denis Villeneuve, came on stage and he said that the first part of Dune was shot around 40% of it was shot on IMAX. This one, the whole thing, 100% of Dune Part 2 shot in IMAX. Get those PLF tickets ready. Dang. Well, and we saw, I think it's the first footage that we've seen 
of this movie at all. We saw a whole trailer, and then at the end of that trailer, it said filmed for IMAX. Not filmed in IMAX, not yeah. filmed with IMAX cameras. It's filmed for IMAX. Yeah, this is going to be a big premium format bet. And Romeo, if yeah. our audience remembers, uh, mm-hmm. when we talked about doing part two on a preview episode, yeah. you were very honest. You said, you know what? I don't know how to feel about this movie. Because Dune Part 1 didn't really feel like a movie. It felt like a trailer. Well, the director agreed with you on stage at CinemaCon. Yeah. Yeah. So he said he something very similar. Like, ah. <laughs> yeah, so I have to say I fell, in love, uh, I fell back in love with Dune because now I'm so hyped. And when I heard about Denis Villeneuve saying that he acknowledged the fact that the first one was an appetizer and the second one is going to be the main course. So I'm like so hyped now because yeah. I was thinking the same way. So now I'm like, okay, now we're all, okay, yeah. serious thing now. And yes. he, I think the words he used were contemplative to describe uh, the first yes. uh, the first Dune entry. And I like contemplative. Don't get me wrong. Like dreams and, and like weird sand monsters and cool music. I was into contemplative. But now we saw footage of what Denis Villeneuve describes as action-packed. So if part one was contemplative, he's using the word action-packed for part two. What we saw, I think, reiterates that this looks amazing. Yeah, a shout out, shout out to co-host Russ Fisher here, not in fact, but in spirit anytime we talk about the Dune franchise because he loves them. And I'm sure Russ Fisher is going to have just as good of a time that I had watching that Advents footage that we saw here at CinemaCon. But let's move forward, guys, because before we get into the DCEU part of the Warner Brothers presentation, which merits its own discussion, we're going to go into that in detail. Let's go to the Christmas corridor because there's something very curious happening here. I'm not sure if it's going to stick by the time we get to December. But Warner Brothers, from December 15th to Christmas Day, has three tent poles coming out five days apart. The first of which is Wonka. And I, I think that it's interesting to bring this up because that's starring Timothy Chalamet. This mm-hmm. is a, a new take on the Willy Wonka story. This is going to be a young Willy Wonka. There's a musical element to it. Romeo, you think this is going to be a success based on the performance and popularity of the 2005 adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Well, not only based, but I wanted to remember our audience. Even it's like a very old movie, especially when you're doing a forecasting comparison. You, 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 can't, you can't go back uh, that much in time. But I mean, when when we were like watching the first uh, the first images from the from the Wonka movie, I mean, we all thought about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's just kind of the same color, same vibe. So yes, the first, well, the first Charlie and, uh, and the Chocolate Factory did more than two hundred million dollars. And that's a Tim Burton version from the two thousands. It was yeah. a strong, strong hit for the time. Yeah. That's before digital cinema came and really opened the international markets and made. I think cinema going more accessible to international yeah. audiences. There's a big overseas potential here. A big overseas potential, and especially uh, regarding Timothée Chalamet's fame. I mean, when you look at that, I mean, I, I don't think I'm taking too much risks. Too much risk saying that this movie is going to yeah. be over a hundred million dollar domestic. Yeah. I just like and the I, way he says Timothy Chalamet. Timothy. We should just have Timothée him say Chalamet. his name. We're yeah, just on a, a podcasting note. Every time one of us is Timothy Chalamet, just crop Romeo saying. Uh, we Timothée have to Chalamet figure that out, <laughs> right? I don't know if our producers going to like us after that. <laughs> I don't know if you recall when we were doing one of the episode kind of looking forward to what all the studios are doing in 2023. I was like, I was a hater. I was skeptical of this film because of that 2005 Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
Uh, the 71 one with Gene Wilder, like, no exaggeration, is like one of my top 10 films of all time. It's a I great Gene Wilder it. performance, mm. by the way. I yeah. every, I wore that VHS out. And I hated the Tim Burton one, and I think maybe I was still a little bitter about mm -hmm. it. I'm like, no one should touch. But Russ Fisher commented, you know, this is from director Paul King, who directed Paddington, which I love. And, you know, seeing the trailer, I see, A, those Paddington vibes. You can definitely tell yes. that it's directed. It has yeah, a musical element. Much. 100%. And also, it is, like, clearly paying homage to that Gene Wilder, Mel Stewart, Willy Wonka, The Chocolate Factory from 71, Timothy Chalamet, specifically citing how, you know, Gene Wilder's performance was, was key to him, whereas the Burton one kind of felt like it was trying to shy away. It was like... It was a Johnny yeah. Depp show, Johnny Depp doing the Johnny and it, Depp it, it thing. It was very like, yeah. oh, no, no, we're not doing a remake. We're doing an adaptation of the book. We're going to sure. be more book accurate. Yeah. I I, I'm not going to talk about that anymore because I could go on for way <laughs> too long and we'd still be here when that marketing panel starts tomorrow at 7.45. But suffice to say, I am, I'm excited for this one now. I was not before. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, I think we have a lot more confidence on Wonka after seeing footage than we did before when we just heard about the concept. That, now, again, we, that's, now we know Hugh Grant plays in Oompa Loompa. Yeah, well, yeah, you just, oh. you just broke it on the podcast. Well, it's probably written everywhere by now, but we did see in the trailer... <laughs> An Oompa Loompa <laughs> Hugh Grant. It's quite funny. It Great reaction funny. from the crowd. Yeah, I think that's the power of CinemaCon when it comes to these advanced reveals is there are ideas that look terrible on paper that once you get to see some footage, you can get a little bit excited. You mentioned the Lego movie mm -hmm. years back. The Lego movie on paper just sounds dumb yeah. and kind of cheesy and cynical. And but then you saw the first look at it and you're like, wow, there's something here. And I felt that like, with Wonka today. Not to be cheesy and maudlin, of them, but like it's those surprises that we are all here for in this industry. Yeah. And it's those surprises and sharing that experience with other people of the like, we none of us thought this was going to be anything. And you just kind of look at everybody else like, this is crazy, right? Like yeah. that. A sense of discovery. Yeah. You feel like you're a watching Warner some. Brothers discovery. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's the first and last pun we'll have on today's episode of the Box Office Podcast. But uh, that's coming up on December 15th, Wonka. Five days later, scheduled to open is Aquaman. And uh, do I have title here lost kingdom city of the lost kingdom aquaman, aquaman 2 just call it that and the lost kingdom and the lost he's not in it it's and it's two of yes them. sure why not let's go with that that's coming out on the 20th we'll go into that as part of our dceu conversation and then five days after on christmas day 2023 the color purple i want to bring in chad kenrick who's helping us produce a show here from las vegas chad you're our resident theater expert you have to walk us through what version of The Color Purple is coming to screens. Because there's a book, there's a movie adaptation, there's a Broadway musical. What exactly is hitting theaters on Christmas Day from Warner Brothers? Yeah, it can be a bit confusing. So in 1982, Alice Walker writes the novel. Next year, she wins a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. In 1985, Steven Spielberg adapts the book with Warner Brothers. Whoopi Goldberg plays Celie, Oprah Winfrey in her first film role as Sophia. Then in 2005, the Broadway musical adapts the novel and the film, taking elements from both with Fantasia as Celie. After an appearance on Oprah, advanced tickets sold to the tune of over six million. I didn't see the original run, Broadway run, but I did see the fantastic revival in 2015 with Cynthia Revo winning the Tony as Celie and Daniel Brooks as Sophia. So all of that, now we're taking that story and putting it back 
to film with Steven Spielberg and Oprah Winfrey producing the film version of the stage musical. Fantasia from the original Broadway run, Asili, Daniel Brooks from the revival of Sophia. And that's your story. J.P. Henson. And I, for me, this was interesting because you were saying this isn't really a story or, or a musical or a book or, you know, anything that outside of America you really have any context for. Like, can we say the color purple is almost like the anti-Meg? Well, you know what? It might be like a... It might I be like we a can goat. safely say that, yes, the color purple as a property is anti-the Meg to the trench. I have a feeling you're accurate on that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, yeah. and I wonder what that's going to mean for international box office. Yeah, it, it took me 10 minutes to ask to Rebecca and to recover my bravery yeah. and to ask her oh, what it is going to be about. Yeah. Is it going to be about Well, I think, I think what Chad just, just presented is the right way to talk about this movie. And it was described during this presentation, which, by the way, Oprah came on. Well, I was going to say, like, when you were talking earlier and in introducing some of David Zaslav's remarks, some crazy, powerful, influential executive coming down from the heavens to talk to us. I was like, are we talking about Oprah yet? <laughs> or David Zaslav? Are we talking about who's, Oprah who's the top already? An executive. And I mean, if musical did so well, in part because Oprah really threw her weight, all the weight of being Oprah behind it, we've definitely seen that she is going to do the same with this film. She, she personally and through all of the arms of her various enterprises, I mean, it definitely seems like she is going to, as a producer and as someone inextricably like associated with the story, she's going to promote the hell out of it. She's encouraging people to like buy groups. She presented it very much as a group movie, as a movie like Girls Night Out kind of thing. Even um, as a family movie. That's something, yeah. that's something that was sure said. Which I'm sure all the was, in the audience were like, yes. It was billed as not your mother's The Color Purple. Mm-hmm. This is something for the family to go out on Christmas Day. It's a group movie for Christmas Day. My concerns aren't with anything that we saw. It was actually a very impactful bit of footage that we saw. Yeah. It was exciting. Well, there was an energy behind it. Not what you'd associate from that source material. But my concern here, guys, isn't what I saw on screen. It's these release dates. You're telling me Wonka comes out on the 15th. The Aquaman sequel comes out five days later. And five days after that, you have the color purple. So not only do you have a musical Willy Wonka on the 15th, 10 days later, you've got another musical from the same studio. I I don't don't see this happening by the time we get to December. I think something moves. I don't think it's going to be the color purple. I would be shocked if it ends up being Aquaman. Who's going to tell Oprah to move the color purple? No, it's going to be Chalamet. People are going to, yeah. people, if anything moves, that would be my bet. We don't know this for a fact, Which but is, I'm looking at these dates. I think of those three titles, if one were to move, I would put my money on Wonka. And just as a moviegoer who, you know, is excited to see a lot of these films presented, I say good. I don't want them to cannibalize each other. Yeah. You know, I, I want all these films, if they're good, to get their due. I think The Color Purple looks amazing. The original, the Broadway show, like the one that Chad, you and I, we both saw the same one, I think. Like, it was very spare, very minimalist. This one looks more magical realism. Like, it looks gorgeous. And Oprah is a marketing machine onto herself. I she mean, was, do you see she was dressed in purple, color, uh, purple eyeglass frames, purple suit, purple eyeshadow. A lot of excitement, I think, for these three movies. I think, as we were mentioning, the big question mark, do they all come out in this crunch time in December in the Christmas corridor? No reason to stack these movies, Mm -hmm. but do you really push the color purple from the Christmas stream? Where do you put something like Aquaman? Because Aquaman is the last part of the DC Extended Universe before it goes through a total reboot. The first part of the transition to a new era of the DC Extended Universe 
happens with The Flash coming out imminently. There's a screening of it as we record this. We're not there. We're doing work instead. So, you know, it's our job. We're, you know, we're not <laughs> we'll, watching we'll, movies uh, here. We'll be back. We'll, we'll, we'll ask some people. We'll ask around. And we'll be back tomorrow to kind of... We'll take the temperature. We'll take the temperature. No we'll spoilers. We'll like, take the temperature. If it's to crazy see. Top Gun Maverick level of uh, excitement or somewhere below. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But, uh, yeah, let's talk about this transition for the DCEU. Because there's three titles in that run-up before the Great Reset under James Gunn. The first of which is The Flash. And we were very curious, and we have been very curious for many months. And still are very curious. Yes, still are very curious as to how Warner Brothers is going to market the movie while Ezra Miller, its star, is embroiled in legal issues. What I learned from the marketing presentation of the footage we saw from The Flash today at the Warner Brothers showcase is that they're marketing this as a Batman movie starring <laughs> Michael Keaton and there may be a flash somewhere in there. You could have put like you could have retitled it Batman 4 and like just like with a tiny featuring the flash at the bottom. You would not know. They definitely took the notes from that first trailer the Michael Keaton show up and everyone lost their minds. I mean they're taking that to heart. Romeo that trailer did crazy well when it came out. It did crazy well, and uh, and I just want to add the, the same thing. I mean, I'm crazy about Batman. And yeah, I was a bit caught by surprise that we were able to see like two different Batman, I think three different Batman. We saw several Batman. Yeah. I and, don't and know in which era. And we saw a Supergirl, she was in there. And I think with the Zod guy, played by Michael Shannon in the first uh, mm-hmm. Superman or the Man of Steel movie. Man of Steel. Yeah, yes. wow, that seems like it came out like really like ages ago. Yeah. There's just been so many missteps in this whole process mm-hmm. where the flash is supposed to at least not clean things up, but get things back on track in this DCEU that went off the rails yeah. years ago. Which is weird to me. And I, and I really wonder how it's going to pan out because I know one of the things that we have been talking about a lot is we know that there's going to be a reboot. We know that Warner Brothers has put the franchise, has trusted the franchise to James Gunn, who was typed in via video uh, and Peter Safran, who actually was on hand to talk about, the upcoming new DCEU. I, I mean, it, the fact that we do have this reboot coming, the fact that we have three films left in what Russ Fisher has called the, quote, lame duck incarnation of the DCEU franchise. And Peter Safran said that uh, he expects these final three films to transition into this new incarnation of the DCEU rather than there being like a cut point, completely different things. Yeah, and I think that's really going to be the strategy here where rather than opening the door to a whole new rebooted DC universe, we're probably building up to that December 20th Aquaman sequel, which has the potential to be the highest grossing globally DCEU title of this era. But before we get there, guys, we have one more title awkwardly sandwiched in between. Mm -hmm. I had doubts about this movie before the presentation. Unfortunately, I have even more doubts about Blue Beetle now. But that may be isolated because Romeo... You were watching attentively during this part. You're a lot more positive on Blue Beetle than I am. That's a DCEU title that's coming out. When is it? The the end of of the summer, August, September era. Why do you have more confidence than I do? What what are the things riding on this movie that you're seeing? Well, I start by taking some distance. And uh, I'm I'm not too crazy fan about DC character and stuff like that. So it's not like I have stakes in this movie, you know, like personal stakes. So 
Actually, I wanted to. I'm looking at you, and you're wearing like a full head-to-toe blue beetle fan outfit. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit more positive, Daniel, about this movie. But I, I wanted to to start by saying that I don't have personal stake in any DC character. Like, I'm not a crazy fan about about superhero. I love those movies, but I just wanted to say that that I wanted to take a step back and let's start by. The trailer, the trailer, the first trailer dropped a couple of weeks ago, early April, and there was so lucky to trailer in front of Super Mario Bros. Oh, that's where they put it. The yeah. first trailer for the for this Blue Beetle thing yeah. comes out ahead of the Super Mario Brothers movie. So it has eyeballs, but is that going to translate to box office sales? In, honestly, it's going to be a real challenge for Warner, but let's also start by the fact that it's an original movie. When I say original movie, it's a non-sequel, and we observe that the audience is more eager and eager to give the chance for a non-sequel movie. It's the first time we're seeing this comic book character on the big screen. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the DCU films up to this point, I mean, they have a lot of baggage associated with mm. them. I mean, they're they're part of a series that has been very controversial in some corners of, of you know, t people talking about, about mm -hmm. criticizing movies. This one feels like maybe they're presenting it more as a standalone than as part of this larger whole, which maybe that will prove the better option. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, I did. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't. I really had the feeling of the Stranger vibes, Stranger Things vibes. Um, and this is the same plot structure that have been used for a couple of years now. When you have kids, teenager facing adults issue, and I think we all of that. And mm -hmm. all of that, so that's why I'm a bit eager to discover the movie. And but I, I saw less Stranger Things in this, Romeo, honestly, and I saw a little bit more Shazam. And if there's a property you don't want to look like in the DCEU right now, it's Shazam. It just seemed like Shazam with Mexican-American actors. I that's thought, what it looked well, like to me. It looked and like, I don't think that's going to be enough. It looked like Ant-Man to me. That's another point. That costume looked a lot like an Ant-Man costume. I just, it, it's hard for me to see what is going to be behind this title in terms of momentum. It's squished randomly introducing a new character between The Flash and Aquaman. And you're right, Rebecca, maybe there's a potential of a solo one-off story. I don't trust the DC Universe to give me that. Not even the Joker movie, which isn't part of the DCEU. It was billed as a solo story. We've got a sequel coming up. By the way, we didn't see or hear anything about that. We saw like a, a combined total of like maybe max two, not two seconds of the Furiosa film in one of the early montages, and that was... I want that was it. We saw nothing more of that. Uh, so we didn't get to see the Joker sequel. We didn't get to see anything from Furiosa. We instead spent a lot of time on Blue Beetle, and I was looking at my watch the entire time. I yeah, but maybe, maybe not, because I have to say maybe, uh, and I, I don't want to say that, but I'll say that maybe because you're a bit too old, guys. I mean, look at look at look at Sholo. Look at look at Sholo. giving me a face right now, going like, I can't believe he just said that. Well, no, I'm three years older. I know, but you you didn't mention the lead character show you have to, you have, to you have to pronounce okay it so you mess. pronounce the french names i pronounce the mexican exactly. names that's how it goes yeah it's uh Sholo mariduena yeah. who's, who's gonna come in because he was part of the cast of cobra kai yeah. that i think half the world saw during lockdown exactly so i really trust that this guy can bring a kids audience teenage audience to the movie yeah. theater and when you look at viewership data from the trailer they are crushing the last Shazam, Fury of God. So that's why I'm a bit more confident about this this figure. And also, let's not forget that one of the, the lowest grossing uh, DC movie after Batman vs. Superman in 2015 is Suicide Squad that did a $60 million domestic Yeah, but that was during the day and date era. So, so I'm not sure. Even that... more, even more. So yeah, that's, that's, that's true. 
I mean, I, I just think it's not a movie that I personally am interested in seeing, but I think that it has potential to bring out those family audiences. You look at that August 18th window, I mean, that it's coming out, it's coming out in August, it's coming out is, you know, kids are going back from school, maybe families want to do like one last big hurrah or something. I'm not willing to count it out yet. That's a, that's a really good shout, Rebecca. This is a low risk, high reward release date, putting it where it is in August. They, it, it does great, great. They build some more of that into yeah. uh, the next ECU. If it doesn't, there was a one-off, they can move on. Yeah, it's very awkwardly positioned. That's why I think I wanted to sort of spend more time than we planned discussing our reactions and the potential of a movie like this because at this point, it can honestly go either way. I can see this overperforming massively or being a big disappointment. We don't know yet. I would like to be a bit more balanced because I feel that way right before they launched the trailer. And when you look at all the reaction, we are all waiting for that. I mean, this kid is a kid of internet, so that's probably why we have so much viewership from the, from the trailer. Data doesn't lie. So, yeah. Data doesn't lie. So that's why I'm a bit more confident. I'm not crazy uh, hype, but I'm a bit more confident. Yeah, well, we'll see how it all plays out later on this year. That does it for our new segment here on the Box Office Podcast. Coming up shortly, we've got Luke Mackey, the Director of Entertainment in Australia, and Alexandra Holden, the Group GM, over at Event Cinemas in our feature segment, Rebecca Pauly interviews them on occasion of Event Cinemas receiving the International Exhibitor of the Year Award here at CinemaCon. But before we go to that interview, we've got a sponsored interview segment with our colleague Maureen Suttle of the box office company that is coming up right after this commercial break. This episode of the Box Office Podcast's CinemaCon 2023 edition is supported by Park VIP. Park VIP is the newest, coolest, and must-have tech to add to your movie theaters. Your guest experience starts in the parking lot, but we all know how those parking lots can get during the weekends. And Park VIP allows your guests to reserve a VIP parking space before they arrive, avoiding that unpleasant hunt for a space. It's a breeze to use and it's integrated right into your ticket flow. Here's how it works. Customer arrives, clicks on a link from Park VIP, and gets access to their premium parking space. You collect the revenue, Park VIP handles all the installations and maintenance. With no downside risk, isn't it time for you to add a new revenue stream to your theater? Visit parkvip.app for more info. That's parkvip.app for more information. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast in our special sponsored segment of today with my colleague, Maureen Suttle, the Chief Product Officer of the Box Office Company, one of my favorite people here in the film industry. It's always great to talk to you on the podcast, Maureen, because I know you're really nervous before, but you always do a good job. We'll treat you okay. We're not (laughs) not going to grill you here. It'll be fine. I appreciate that. That's so kind of you. Well, welcome back. It's always exciting coming back with our parent company here to Las Vegas. And we're running around on our end, covering everything for Box Office Pro. And you're in charge of everything in terms of products and deliverables for the box office company. To our listeners that may not be familiar with what our parent company does at large, uh, how would you describe the box office company's business activities in the exhibition sector? Thanks for asking, Daniel. In short, we're the one of the leaders of media technology and data for the global movie industry. What that means is we collect all kinds of data, showtimes, films, metadata on films, 
movie theaters. And with that, we build databases of what film is playing where, at what time. We sell that data to platforms such as you know Google, Bing, Apple, TikTok, etc., to enable for more discoverability of movies online. We also use this data to build digital experiences for movie theaters. So we're one of the main providers of websites, online ticketing, mobile apps, and all kinds of other digital marketing tools, SEO, pay-per-click campaigns, etc. And that division of the company that specializes in exhibitor websites is called Boost. You have a whole ecosystem. You just had a milestone in terms of clients. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We've been serving movie theaters for their tech needs and digital needs for over 20 years now. But we launched this new division and a new set of tools about two years ago. And we have now over 100 exhibitors that are trusting us on these platform. And so that's a really big deal for us. We're really grateful for the trust these exhibitors are giving us. And we're excited for the power these tools can bring to our clients. Could you tell us who some of those clients are? Because it's a big global company. We've got offices in in a couple of far-flung locations. What's that diversity of uh, exhibitors that you're working with on this Boost system? Our goal is really to cater to everyone. So we have built a, a SaaS platform that's easy to use for independent cinemas, where even someone without a lot of tech knowledge is able to create a new page, create events, you know, promote whatever's going on in their local community. But we also have a layer on top of that where we can build the most custom experiences. So you have exhibitors such as Cinepolis USA, Landmark Theatres, Everyman in the UK, CGR in France, that are all very custom, very specific clients that have needs that are not necessarily the ones of independent cinemas. But the platform can really handle the full spectrum of needs for the industry. Yeah, big or small, either a single screen client or one of those major circuits like you just mentioned. As we look at the future of exhibition, we've been seeing this big trend of exhibitors investing more on their mobile apps, on their websites, on making sure they can sell tickets on their own instead of relying on aggregators like we have here in the U.S. market. Uh, What's been your perspective looking at this transition to exhibitors managing that conversation with their clients directly through their digital channels. It's the smart move for them. We did a survey of of our exhibitors in in multiple countries. In the U.S., it's over 50% of of tickets that are sold online on the exhibitor's website. In the U.K., it's even higher than that. I think some of them are shooting towards 70%, 75% of tickets sold online. So that's where the conversation is happening today. Most people don't line up at the box office, you know, 10 minutes before the showtime anymore. So that's really where it makes sense to drive the most investment because that's where we can drive conversion and make the difference on the bottom line of our customers. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And now coming up next here on the Box Office Podcast, today's feature interview right after the break. How has 2023 been so far, you know, in the in the Australian New Zealand market for you guys? And I think like a lot of the territories, we've had a bit of a patchy year. We've had some, you know, really promising films. Over, you know, starting with Avatar was incredible. And then we, we're just missing a lot of that mid-tier content um, and the volume and some consistency. But when customers see a film that they love, 
They are here, they're choosing, you know, they're choosing our premium concepts and there's no hesitation to come back. And, you know, the Australian New Zealand markets have kind of, you know, we've had some of the toughest lockdowns during the COVID period and consumers uh, are certainly making the most of, you know, the newfound freedoms. So they're they're coming out and they're enjoying it and um, we're making the most of them coming. Great. I mean, are you finding that they are gravitating more towards those premium experiences? I mean, you have so many of them of so many different types. Are they over-indexing, like, by more than they did pre-pandemic? Yeah, look, at the moment, with the admissions we're getting, we're seeing at about 12.5% increase compared to pre-pandemic, and that is, you know, that's really strong. We've seen our average ticket price go up on the back of that as well. So it's been a, with the fewer admissions that we've been getting due to that missing content, we're certainly um, appreciative of people choosing the much better experience. I think people, you know, after being in their houses, really, truly want an experience that's something you can't get anywhere else. And you guys have so many different types of premium experiences. It's not just one type of, you know, luxury recliner, one type of, you know, big screen. How do you determine, like, in the research phase, what market will respond well to which things? We've got a, you know, a national footprint across a large territory and, you know, we've got regional cinemas and we've got metropolitan cinemas. And what we have found, I'll talk to that part first now to maybe talk to the state research piece is that there are customers in every market that appreciate premium cinema, gold class, VMAX, and the parts that they appreciate consistent across all of our markets. Mm-hmm. It's just about then finding, you know, uh, at what the level of investment is for those markets based on the return. So, you know, people are generally the same in all markets and they, you know, if Gold Class, Gold Class resonates with all different audiences across all of those markets and the experience is loved by lots of people. In fact, our competitors often, their cinemas get called Gold Class, even though they're not, um, because that's what people refer to as premium experiences now, uh, is Gold Class or VMAX. So but from a research perspective with seats, uh, I'll let Alex look to that. <laughs> well, we've been on a really interesting journey. We are, I think it's you know important to say we are obsessed with customer research. Um, and actually listening to what our customers want. And I think as an industry for such a long time, we kind of all built cinemas that look really similar. And it went from a traditional type of cinema, like a black box, dark design. People experimented with premium. We were one of the first markets to do that. And we ended up with this kind of, you know, two cinema concept, one very basic original cinema and our gold-class seats that happen to have recliners and a dining experience. And we kind of didn't shift away from that for a really long time. And a few years ago, we kind of sat back and went, well, what does what does the future of cinema look like? Yeah. What, you know, what do our customers want? And we ran a really extensive research program where we literally went on a Luke Lucas part of the trip, a global search for the best seats. It was amazing. Yeah, the best seats in the world. And we came back and we actually pulled out seats that were in a traditional cinema and put in all of the seats we could find from around the world to test what our customers actually thought. And we brought through groups of people to test each of the seats. And 
off the back of that, we, you know, we were able to kind of shape what our experiences could look like for the future. Boutique that we talked about before was actually one that came off the back of some of that research. It was a seat that we personally loved and we were like, so comfortable. let's throw it into the test and see, see, you know, what our customers think. And they absolutely loved it. And we built a cinema like off the back of how well that seat tested. You know, one of the big things as part of our, um, you know, part of our business goals at EBT and not only the cinemas is about maximizing assets. And so we looked at our cinemas and we went, is there a way that we can make the undesirable areas of our cinemas desirable? Mm-hmm. And you think about it, right? No one is jumping to sit in the front row. <laughs> not typically, right? And so yeah, we're like, is it, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're next crane. Is there a way that we can make that area desirable? And one of the things that came out of this test was that day beds were a really great solution for the front row of cinemas. And different seats tested, like, you know, overperformed with different demographics. And I think for us, we found the day beds were teenagers <laughs> and families with young kids because parents with two small children could sit on a double day bed really comfortably, teenagers, because they hang out with their mates, were happy enough to sit there. And what we've seen based on doing those, the reconfiguration of our cinemas, is the heat maps. So we've actually looked at heat maps of where people have bought in the cinemas since adding in mm-hmm. different seating types. And we've now made those less desirable areas of the cinemas desirable. So where people were not sitting before, they're all starting to that first. And that's all based off the research that we did with our customers. Another element of event that I that I wanted to ask about is sustainability issues. I mean, it's something that's gotten more and more talked about. I feel like it kind of took a back burner, rightfully so, during the pandemic when, you know, Bigger, bigger concerns. But can you talk a bit about event cinemas, like attitudes towards sustainability and some of the sustainability efforts that you do? Yeah, look, we, uh, it, it's a great question. It's something that, you know, as a father of three kids and just something that we care about generally, our business is, is really passionate about. We're also um, owning ski fields um, down Threadbow, and the environment is an absolutely critical part of what they do in that territory. Well, so they have to be you know, across all of that. Uh, and we've learned a lot from them and we've taken all of those practices. And during the pandemic, we didn't stop. Like, we've still been doing design. We've still been, you know, looking at how at new leases and researching plant equipment. And so we have a design mandate that has to be sustainable. So when we're upgrading any plant or, you know, we're buying furniture or we're doing any of that sort of stuff, we have to tick a box that says that, it is absolutely, you know, meeting this new sustainability criteria. Mm-hmm. And so when we replace air conditioning, it's more efficient, it's better for the environment, it's ideally locally, you know, sourced and maintained. So, you know, we're not shipping stuff from overseas where possible. And then, you know, things like all of our gift cards are now um, moving to completely recyclable and also, you know, they're biodegradable and they work, you know, hard plastic like all the old cards that most people had. We do um, container recycling. We've moved to sustainable and recycled paper for any of our popcorn containers. And we're the local council who's responsible for waste pickup. We've liaised with them to make sure that our stuff is basically all recyclable. So anything that comes out of our site... Yeah, and we've got some great examples. There's a cinemas on the Gold Coast. Basically, 99% of the things that come out of there, out of our cinema, our waste, are able to be recycled. Wow. Uh, everything from the like the popcorn containers that they get sorted by the council or by the you know waste manufacturer, 
or the waste collector, and they are able to use all of that wherever it goes, into other places. For Avatar recently, we collected all of the 3D glasses, which was a nice change to be collecting 3D glasses, especially at that, that volume. Yeah. But we were concerned about the environmental impact, you know, their single use. And so we worked with a company who collected them all and are turning them into softball playgrounds for children. Oh. So we're constantly looking for the right way to do things in a way that, you know, is sustainable because it's critically important to everyone. And the right partners to work with to make that happen is uh, Moonlight Cinema is the one that's carbon, car- no carbon footprint. I mean, is that, uh, I forget the exact term. Uh, that yeah, it's, it's, it's a complex rabbit one, the, okay. the carbon neutral carbon, uh, and it's quite, it's quite technical. But look, we, we have Moonlight Cinemas is an outdoor cinema business that we run. We've got five locations and we're in the most beautiful parks that we can find in each of the capital cities. Mm-hmm. Now, they're beautiful parks and they need to be respected. So we basically set up a park every night and, you know, bump it in and bump it out every night. And, you know, it's about not doing any damage to the park. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we did is we were able to find some great partners who were able to offset whatever carbon was spending. So we still have projectors, so there's still electricity. We buy green energy through our partners, one of our partners, and then one of our other partners offsets the, any of the other environmental impacts that we're making. And it's, it's our second year doing that now. We're still looking for further opportunities. You know, we had uh, opportunities to, again, bring in recycled products. So we have no single-use plastics anymore. We have paper straws, we have, you know, no plastic bags, all that stuff we've been able to do. We're also, um, you know, it's a great family event too, so we also allow people to bring their pets. We have a couple of dog, bring your pet dog sessions, um, which which is people love. But in that, we also then have community messaging. So we're trying to use our platform across all of our screens and across the Moonlight brand to talk about the sustainable options that people have as well. I mean, the most important thing for any cinema, obviously, is that you have good content, you have content that people want to come see, and that's, you know, in the exhibition industry, that's something that, for the most part, you know, you're relying on other people to provide, or sadly not provide <laughs> sometimes, as the case has been a little yeah. bit over these past few years. Holistically, we have a really great relationship, especially with the local studios and even the international representation at the studios in LA, they're great listeners and everyone in the last couple of years especially has been faced with some really challenging market conditions that there's no playbook for it and I think given what we've had to deal with, I think the relationships probably got stronger and, you know, internally we do talk about the fact that the pandemic, you know, potentially, you know, if you want to find a silver lining, uh, my view is that, and this is my view, that it's condensed what would probably have taken 10 years of argy-bargy and, you know, like negotiating and tests and trials, and we've kind of condensed it into what I think is a three-year period. <laughs> and I think that we're starting to see some stability come through, and I think there's some recognition from the critical studios and, the, you know, that exhibition is a part of the ecosystem that's really, really important. You know, I think as David Zaslav, it was quoted five times more profitable if you release in theatrical downstream. Yeah. It's a pretty powerful statement and it gives me a lot of hope that they're going to, you know, return in a meaningful way to providing that consistent content. And I think, you know, we have, you know, like I mentioned before, the snow fields, they're relying on snow. If they have a bad snow month, it's 
a bad season. We're the same, you know. The movies and the content's our snow, and we are absolutely relying on it. We've got good partnerships, and what I do love, especially locally, the guys are very open to working with us to use our loyalty program mm-hmm. to make sure that the right people know about the right films at the right time. And I think one of the things that I would like to see, I think it's been a, you know, it's something that I've spoken broadly about um, over the last couple of years, is that I think one of the big shifts that's happened is movie um, marketing is condensed into like four weeks before a title comes out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember I've been in this industry for 26 years now. Mm-hmm. And when I started, you know, at Christmas time, we were running trailers for the following Christmas because Customers often only come, you know, four to five times a year. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they come at Christmas time, they come at special events time, you know. And so, you know, I think if we can look at how that awareness piece starts much earlier, and I think there's a lot of things happening there, you know. Content creators are, have much more flexibility to finish movies much closer to the deadline. Mm-hmm. They're controlling it more. And so, you know, films are getting shorter, more concentrated marketing that doesn't give time for people to know when films are on. And we're all busier now too, right? Mm So, you know, I often go to a barbecue where people are saying, hey, when's Maverick coming out? I'm like, it was out for 26 weeks. Come on, man. man. (laughs) Everyone's doing a really incredible job given the circumstances. They had production delays. They had, you know, there was a lot of nervousness. Globally, you know, I had to deal with five states here uh, and government mandates and, you know, the studios were dealing with a global hodgepodge of governments in every territory making different decisions, same with the cinemas. And I think, you know, it's, it's the variety of content we need to absolutely keep seeing. It's the, you know, the consistency of that content we need to keep seeing. And I think if we could really work together to get the, the marketing side of it right across exhibition and across the studios, I think we're in for, you know, I'd like to see it be the golden years of cinema again because especially in our territory we've got amazing cinemas We've got, you know, people who want to come out and see things. We just need the content there. And I think, just to finish on that, like the introduction of Amazon, you know, releasing Air over the weekend here, it was in our top three films, you know, with Mm -hmm. very little lead time, really, in my opinion. But it's getting great reviews, and the quality of the content will mean that people will come back and see something else that trailed on that film. So, Mm -hmm. you know, our research tells us that seeing a movie, a trailer for a movie in the cinema is a really high predictor of them coming back to see that movie. Mm. What we've been discussing as well is like the maturity of the Australian and New Zealand markets. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, you know, kept out kind of aggregators from our digital ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so we have all of our customers coming and booking direct with us, whether that's in cinema or online. They book through direct to each of the brands in mm-hmm. our market. And because of that, you know, our loyalty members represent over 70% of our total transactions. Wow. Um, and so we have a really, we, you know, we call it our number one marketing asset. And to Luke's point before, that means we have a very good relationship with the local studios and distribution partners because first party data is gold, right? And we use it to kind of, you know, help shape a lot of the marketing campaigns that we do. And we track awareness of titles. So when Luke talked about trailers, we know trailers are the number one predictor of whether people are coming back. But we also are tracking awareness of our customers coming through and providing that information back to studios. And I feel like that's something that we can do work even closer 
with the marketing departments of major studios on as well around, you know, what audiences are over-indexing with the content that they're coming out, having, you know, being part of that kind of longer lead awareness piece, I think is going to, can only be super valuable to both exhibition and distribution, um, particularly in the kind of years to come. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's two great examples in my mind. The leaked photos from Barbie last year have kept Barbie in the top ten list of, you know, most desired film to see. And the other one was John Wick. You know, and the success of John Wick in our market's been incredible. But they, you know, announced it, I think it was October last year or uh, and then they moved it, and it's just given a time, and it's the results speaks for itself. Like, it's incredible. And I think, and I think you know, Maverick also had two marketing campaigns in our territory. <laughs> I'm not suggesting they do that every film, but it certainly helps giving people time for that awareness and then the anticipation and then the action, you know, four weeks out. So, And that was Luke Mackey and Alexandra Holden from Event Cinemas talking to Rebecca Polly here on the feature interview segment of the Box Office Podcast. And earlier in this episode, a big thank you to Maureen Suttle from the Box Office Company and her colleague at the same business entity, our colleague Romeo Duchenne. On the Box Office Pro side, I'm Daniel Luria. A big thank you to Chad Kennerk stepping in here with us. And of course, my colleague and co-host Rebecca Polly. We'll be back again with another daily episode tomorrow morning going over everything here at CinemaCon 2023. Thank you so much for listening. The Box Office Podcast is a collaboration between Box Office Pro, The Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. We'll talk to you again real soon.